The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered cold-filtered, and cold-packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When it's time for a new credit card, the best ones do way more than just buy stuff. And that's why U.S. Bank offers credit cards that make every day more rewarding. Earn cash back. Score points when you shop, dine out, travel, or binge watch. Or get a low intro APR. U.S. Bank credit cards were designed to fit your lifestyle. So make every day more rewarding. And check out usbank.com slash credit card. U.S. Bank credit cards are issued by U.S. Bank National Association N.D. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Welcome to the Rotowire Prospect Podcast. Clay Link here with lead prospect writer James Anderson. First prospect pod of 2018. Want to thanks, give thanks to uh, New Day, N E U D A E. We appreciate the song Lion Kings, which we are still using as our intro for the time being. We may have to hit them up for a new song for, for this year, but James, it's good to be back talking with you. We talked a lot about the Rotowire Dynasty Invitational your From Scratch Dynasty League that you started shortly after Christmas. Talked about that on the SiriusXM show last week. We're going to be talking more about it today, but I'm not going to run down all the specifics. You can catch that in your latest Farm Futures piece, uh, which was very good. You laid out your personal top 300 Dynasty League rankings. Focusing more today, though, on our approach with prospects and the guys we got uh, on our team specifically. Yeah, I mean, it's a... It's, uh... It's great, first of all, just to be back uh, doing the prospect pod again. It's been way too long, I feel. Uh, lots happened since then, obviously. Yeah, we need to, by the way, come up with something new, hip-hop-related or wrestling-related, possibly, uh, to close out the show this year. Yeah, we, uh, 
we're going to go get drinks after we're done recording. Hopefully we are inspired and come up yeah, with something exactly. there. But yeah, if you guys have any suggestions for how you want us to close the show this year, definitely reach out, let us know. Uh, definitely no guarantees there, but um, yeah, I mean, it's everyone in this, this league RDI kind of approached prospects in, in some way, shape or form differently. And, you know, there were, there were teams that just were taking prospects from round one on. There were teams that only started taking prospects when they absolutely had to to make to meet uh, minimum roster requirements. And then uh, teams like you and I, where we were kind of, you know, I, I was take we were taking Ian and I were taking prospects a little earlier than you, but I mean we've both been kind of mixing and matching uh, from the early to middle rounds of the draft with with different guys. Yeah, you know, I didn't come in with any sort of set you know, mindset, I guess, as far as when I wanted to start taking prospects, but I knew I wanted to just generally build a sustainable winner. And that involves getting prospects. And the young guys I got early were, are not too far removed from prospect status, or they're still super young, like Carlos Correa, first round pick, not a surprise there. Falling to sixth overall, I was surprised by that. But then like, you know, Ian Happ, of course, graduated last year, Jose Barrios. So I wanted to get some guys who were still super young and, and maybe on the verge of breaking out at the big league level and also get, you know, load up on infield prospects. Cause I think there are quite a few good ones. I was lucky to get Ryan McMahon. I think it was my first prospect I took. And then Miguel Andahar, who, you know, very little separates them on your prospect list. I didn't think I'd get both of them, but I was thrilled to, to get them both on my roster. Yeah. And you got Walker Bueller ahead of those two guys who, you know, I mean, a young, a young oh, rotation right, yeah. of Severino, Burrios, Weaver, and Bueller. That could be that could be really nasty for for a long time. Obviously, there's all kinds of risk with with pitchers, but that's a that's a really nice young foursome. Uh, you know, when I you were picking six, which I, I thought was as soon as I saw the draft unfolding, and I saw that you got Correa with the sixth spot. And I think you only bid three keeper spots for next year. To get that sixth spot, I thought that you had the best spot in the entire draft when just factoring in the sacrifice and the reward. If I had known that it would have only taken, say, a bit of four keeper spots to get that sixth spot, knowing Correa would be there, I would have I would have done that all day. I just I didn't think there was any chance Correa would be there at six, but he was. Um, I had no yeah. When I got that bid, I I assumed Correa would be long gone. And. So I guess that that's actually not a bad thing to just talk about really quickly. Like you were assuming Cray would be long gone. Who'd you anticipate ending up with at six? Yeah, I ended up with Bryant, who I saw on your sheet here, your uh top three hundred is exactly in the sixth spot. <clears throat> so we were on the same same level there. I, I just you know, there were, I knew there'd be some other guys maybe in that range, like I don't know, Machado, those types. Yeah. Didn't wanna I actually we talked before it even started and I I did consider Ronald Acuna. I told you that if he was, if Correa was gone, assuming that was the case. Um, but it, it turned out that when Acuna went to, uh, 13 overall, there were a lot of people saying it was quite a bit of a reach. Yeah, and those people are just people that I, I definitely <laughs> don't see eye to eye with. Uh, mm-hmm. I was fully anticipating getting Acuna at 15. He obviously went two picks ahead of me. Uh, and so at that point, I... You, you know, we talked with Chris Welsh on the the radio show on Saturday, and and he was talking about how he let the draft kind of come to him. 
at that point I kind of had to just sort of take what the draft was giving me. I didn't have, you know, I, I, I needed, I wasn't going to be able to go prospect. I just, I thought that would have been way too aggressive on a guy like Vlad Jr. there. And so I wanted to get a foundational piece that could anchor me for a, a real nice competitive run for the next six, seven years. And I thought Freddie Freeman was kind of the best batting average bet on the board among guys that were, you know, just kind of entering their prime. And then you get a guy like Chris Sale and then Ozzy Albies, Manuel Margot are kind of my versions of your like Ian Happ, David Dahl, guys that were recently prospects have graduated, but, you know, still sort of prospects for the, yeah. the intents and purposes. Guys that really, you know, have their best years still ahead of them, um, very young and just getting those guys for their entire primes. That's a really nice kind of way to build a, a dynasty team. And got Kenley Jansen, who, you know, we've gotten some some heat for that. Uh, just because, you know, we, we went young. We skewed young, for sure. And people have wondered, like, well, why would you take Kenley Jansen? Well, you know, at some point, if you want to win the league, you're going to need to do really well in saves, ratios, strikeouts. Uh, Kenley Jansen and Chris Sale, to me, like, those are guys that you're going to need on a championship team one way or another, and we just started with them in the draft instead of having to trade for them when that, that time comes. Obviously, there's there's risk, but there's risk with every player, and there's risk with, you know, if, if we had taken, say, like the, the other pitchers that went in that round, like Aaron Nola, Chris Archer, Jake DeGrom, Hugh Darvish, Zach Granke, like I, I refuse to accept an argument that Kenley Jansen's more risky than those guys because – any of those guys could get hurt at any moment. It wouldn't be that surprising. A guy like Zach Granke, he's old. I mean, he could his production could fall off. That wouldn't be surprising. Jansen's still 30. He's still, in my opinion, got a good six, seven years of, of a really, really solid prime left. So I, I really like the idea of, of getting him as a building block there. But then after after him and Margot, that's when the prospect run started for Ian Kahn and myself with Bichette, Brinson, Royce Lewis uh, with our next three picks there. Yeah, looking back at the early rounds, that Bo Bichette pick in the six maybe like the best pick of the draft. Because, yeah, you mentioned those guys who went later in the fourth. You know, Fernando Tatis Jr. went two picks after you picked Jansen. But then Bo Bichette, two rounds later. So it wasn't like a, a big drop-off in terms of prospects that you had uh, to suffer by taking Jansen there. And, yeah, you said you don't have to trade for a closer in this instance by taking Jansen. You also don't have to do what I did. And, you know, spend five pretty valuable picks on guys who are speculative closer types uh, in the back half of the the draft. So, yeah, I don't think there's any problem with taking Jansen there. I actually really like that pick because you guys have got a great, you know, win now team with what you loaded up on early. But you got these prospect chips here, which really could bring in massive hauls via trade to to fill your fill out your roster and really make a possibly make a push this year. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I don't know how competitive we're going to be this year just because of the amount of teams in the league that really are 100% pot committed on winning this year. Because, like, you know, I I don't anticipate us sacrificing our long-term sustainability to try to hang with teams that took, you know, Kershaw and Blackman with their first two picks and 
then just you know kind of filled out the roster with guys that are in their prime or maybe on the declining phase of their prime. Uh, we injuries I, could wipe out a lot of those teams. Sure, though. sure. And I mean, you know, we're going to be ready for anything because we have, you know, we have enough big league players. Unlike you know Tom Trudeau and Greg Wellemeyer, we have the big league pieces to mm-hmm. to round out a, a a roster where we're going to be getting points and competing. And yeah, a lot of things could happen. I I in a draft like this, I think kind of the key, especially when you get to the middle and later rounds, is trying to find value on guys that whose stock could be up from this year to the following year. And so that's why, you know, I really tried to stay away from taking, uh, you know, guys like Dexter Fowler, guys like, uh, you know, Jake Odorizzi, just just guys that, like, we sort of know what they are, but it's just it's not going to be getting better anytime no. soon. And so it's just kind of, you know, buying low on guys like Keon Broxton, Tyler Glass now. Uh, you know, obviously not all those guys are going to turn out, but if you hit on a few of them, then you have some, some more foundational pieces. Uh, Bichette, you know, you said Bichette was one of the better picks and, you know, there were, there were a lot of picks I liked the, the reason why I think it ended up looking that way is because it was just one team taking prospects through the first five rounds. Yeah. And that's a mistake. That was a mistake by a lot of the league because at a certain point and that this kind of is borne out in my dynasty league rankings obviously not every owner is going to agree with those but there comes a point whether it's late round three early round four where there's some prospects who are more valuable than the guys that are in the big leagues and you know a guy like nelson cruz i mean he's just to me the idea of taking him over a guy like Tatis Jr., Senzel, Bo Bichette. It really just doesn't make any sense unless you're just all in on winning in 2018, which Rob Silver definitely is. It's just that's not the way. I didn't want to have all my chips in on the first year of the league and then have to go into a rebuild afterwards. And, yeah, I mean, the fact that there was only one team taking prospects, it meant that the next team to jump in and start taking prospects was going to get a ton of value because – we were only five or six guys down the top prospect list at that point. So you mentioned that you had thought you'd get Acuna, but after that didn't happen, did you and Ian Khan kind of have to, did you guys adjust your strategy for taking prospects when you saw that so many were slipping in the draft? You know, we were, we were always going to be in on prospects in at some point in the first 10 rounds. That's just, to me, that's just value. I mean, that's, you're not going to be able to, I would never be able to make it through a draft like this without starting to take prospects at some point in the first 10 rounds just because that's where that's where you're getting guys who are going to pop and turn I mean if you're trying to form a dynasty you're not going to be able to put a dynasty together drafting guys at like their peak price, you know. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say that we adjusted our strategy really uh you know, we'd been discussing guys like Bo Bichette, guys like Tatis Jr. I mean, we, we discussed Ila Jimenez. Um, I mean, we these were all guys that we were close to taking, and we ended up going in a different direction. And at a certain point, it just – our top five on our big board were just prospects. You know, it yeah. wasn't even debatable. Whereas, like, Kenley versus Tatis um, – or no, I guess it would have been 
Uh, yeah, Kenley versus Tatis. That's a tough call. Um, Tom Trudeau, I know, is really happy with the way things <laughs> played out for him there. But, um, you know, he if he wants to win the league, he's going to need a closer at some point. We already have the best closer in baseball. And Tatis, there's there's some risk there. I mean, he's a very exciting prospect. But fourth round, I think that's fine value for both those guys. But then when you get to, like, the sixth round, like you said, Bo Bichette and, like, Royce Lewis in the eighth round, stuff like that, that's when the value really just starts to get you know, it was a tremendous too, too bargain. Pass up. Yeah, absolutely. Tatis Jr., by the way, saw he is officially invited to big league camp for spring training. Definitely an exciting player. You have the ETA 2019. Any chance he sneaks in, or does it just make good business sense for this team to uh, wait until 2019? Yeah, I would almost put it at a 0% chance of him coming up in 2018. It just It's hard to see how that would make sense. Just all about experience. Now, he, you know, people, I've had people, like, ask me why I think he's so good or, like, why I think that, he compares to Manny Machado and they're looking at what he did at double a in like a tiny sample to close out the year. It was kind of like a here we're rewarding your awesome year at low a by sending you to this playoff team at double a. If you're, if you're even using any of what he did in 14 games at double a to evaluate him, then you're just crazy. I mean, he was 18 Mm -hmm. years old. He had a historic season in the Midwest league. I mean, that's what you got to look at. Just, the fact that he even got to go to double A is just a reward for how good he was at low A. It's not that they thought, oh, he's ready to go hit double A pitching. He he probably starts the year at high A or double A this year. Like it's not it's not like he's just this guy that's knocking on the door of the big leagues. He's got a lot of long ways to go in terms of development and I think he's gonna get there, but I think he's more of an early twenty nineteen guy. I mean that kind of warning or kind of uh, cautionary tale of just not reading too much into numbers in a small sample after a, a jump in levels can also apply to Lewis Brinson because I feel like people are discounting him a little too much after the disappointing run. It wasn't that disappointing. Small sample, uh, but did not fare well in his first exposure to big league pitching. You got him in the seventh. Are you going to warn our listeners to uh, to be, be patient and, and give Lewis Brinson a mulligan for that showing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was getting completely, you know, very inconsistent work. He was up. It was kind of more of a, hey, like, this is what the big leagues are like. There might not be a long-term job for you here this season, but we'll we'll bring you up, get you some experience. I would I would throw that out, too. Uh, I would also <laughs> caution people against reading too much into his AAA numbers because they were at Colorado Springs. But um, one of the benefits of that, of the, the RDI draft, if you're willing to take guys who aren't locks to be uh, that useful in 2018, that's where you can get some bargains because a lot of the owners are just taking guys that they that can help them win a title in 2018. So a guy like Brinson falls a little bit just because he's not a lock to contribute this year, and that's where we will get some of our bargains. Absolutely. So then Royce Lewis... You took in the eighth. That was the round I did take Walker Bueller. I, f- I kind of forgot that I took in that high, but I, I'm excited about Walker Bueller. Big risk, but couldn't pass him up there. But then in the ninth, Greg Bird, 10th, Jorge Mateo, which allowed me to get Willie Adamas in the 11th. On your prospect rankings, 
you have, it's not a big gap, but you do have Willie Adamas ahead of Jorge Mateo by a few spots. Was it the, really the speed in, in team context? You had a fair amount of power. You needed the speed. Is that why you, you reached down a little bit for Mateo? Well, you know, I'm sharing my team with Ian Khan, so we're we're using my prospect rankings pretty pretty heavily, mm-hmm. but Mateo was a guy that he really wanted and you know, I definitely see the case. Uh I have the reason I have Adamas ahead of Mateo is just because Adamas is gonna be in the big leagues for the bulk of this year. I think that he's a much safer bet to be an everyday shortstop long term. And to hit enough to be valuable in that regard. Like, Mateo, to me, there's still a decent amount of risk. Like, that that speed is going to play at some point in the big leagues. He's going to find a role, whether it's as a maybe super utility guy might be, like, a a realistic floor for him. But, you know, one way or another, he's going to steal 30-plus bases in his peak. Not sure what kind of batting average is going to come with that. Whereas Adamus, I'm just very comfortable about the skill set translating as an everyday shortstop. So that's why I'm higher. But Ian wanted Mateo. I didn't really see anything wrong with chasing upside there. I mean, we, we had and we were we were also partly kind of playing against uh, Tom and Greg at a certain point because we knew that they were going prospects with all these picks. Uh, we thought they would probably be on Mateo. And that if we wanted him, we had to take him there. And we thought there might be a chance that a guy like Adamus comes back to us. So that was part of the reasoning there. I mean, we didn't go straight down my prospect list because obviously we're, we're co-owning the team. But, um, you know, I thought you got a good value in the 11th on Adamus, and I was happy with Mateo in the 10th. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, well, one thing about Adamus, I like the power, but I don't know if he's really going to be a standout in any one category. Well, Mateo... I think will be a, a really good stolen base contributor. The the one pick it was shortly after Mateo, Tom, and Greg that really crushed me was Taylor Trammell. Yeah, I really like your outlook on him for the side. These power speed guys so valuable, and he's really a tier below the the top prospects, and really heading that that second tier. And as a Reds fan, of course, I'm in love, but I also just really kind of in awe of this guy's handle on the strike zone, given his limited baseball experience as a two-sport athlete but uh moving on Willie Dames in the 11th you ended up taking AJ Puck with your next pick want to give your thoughts on on grabbing Puck there yeah there was definitely a trend with our with our first you know five or six pitchers we took you know actually even you know actually all the pitchers we've taken so far I think kind of fit this mold is we we were just looking for upside and, you know, you have a guy like Chris Sale, have a guy like Kenley Jansen. A.J. Puck, to me, just really fit that mold as the third pitcher for our staff where it's just crazy strikeout potential, big power arm from the left side. Uh, there's some bullpen risk for sure. I think that everyone would tell you that. Even the A's would probably tell you that. But if he can, you know, Melissa Lockard, who's in this league and covers the A's system um, better than anyone she, as she said on Twitter after we took him, like the the next the last step really for him is figuring out how to turn a lineup over for a third time, and you know that's the last step for a lot of pitching prospects. But if he can get there, and if he can just maybe make you know another incremental improvement on the the command and the control, 
I think he could be a really, really nice frontline starter for a while. So that was, you know, we were running out. I mean, if you kind of look, one of the surprising things to me about this draft was how aggressive people were on pitching prospects. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I've, I'm in leagues like this where if you're trying to trade a pitching prospect, you almost have to sell 80 cents in the dollar because everyone's just so scared about paying full freight for a, for a pitching prospect. But in this draft, you had all the top guys were just going really early. You had Bueller and Kopech go in the eighth. Forrest Whitley, I think, went in the uh, – actually, Whitley went in the eighth as well. Whitley, Kopech, Bueller all went – uh, Honeywell actually went in that round too, and to me, the last guy and, and Gohara went in the tenth. Mitch Keller went in the tenth. The last guy in that tier for a while had been Puck because I, I view Puck kind of in that same sort of class as Honeywell and Bueller. And we were it just got to a point where we were like, well, I mean, he's still there, and after him, there's a, there's a pretty big drop off to the next pitching prospect we liked. So we we liked kind of rounding off that that run of pitching prospects another 11th round pick i want to ask you about because it got a fair amount of buzz from people you know giving love to crisp blessing for taking helio ramos uh of the giants i thought it was a pretty good pick i know you certainly not low on him by any means you have him 49th in the top prospect list but why are you maybe a little lower on helio ramos than others uh i just think there's a ridiculous amount of risk there. Uh, but I, like, I praise that pick. I, I applaud it when anyone kind of just goes by their own intuition on a prospect. You know, that's, that's, and Chris sees a lot of, right. A lot and, of guys. Look, Chris, yeah. Chris knows prospects better than, better than most people. And if you, Sometimes that's when the the truly brilliant picks happen is when you kind of go off the board and take your guy because you're just not sure if he's going to make it back to you and you just it would be too painful to risk getting sniped and so you just take him. You know, maybe that was a round or two early earlier than he needed needed to go, but uh you, you know, we'll never know and he got his guy. I think he's got, you know, Ramos has crazy upside. He's got the potential to be a top 25 fantasy pick. Uh he gets some Jonas Cespedes comps. I just I worry about the swing and miss. I think it might be there might be more bumps along the road for him than some of your other recent guys that have gone from rookie ball to low A. Like he's not going to have a, a Vlad Junior or Bo Bichette type of run next year, or Ronald Acuna type of run because he, I think he's going to go a little bit slower just because of the the swing and miss issues and the breaking ball recognition stuff like that. It, it's going to be a bit, a bit slower of a trajectory to the big leagues, but the, the upside's crazy. And I, I'm glad that Chris went with, with his guy there. Yeah. And if, you know, if the giants front office, if they're listening, you heard James, a lot of risk. So might as well just give him up for Billy. <laughs> hey, you need a center fielder. <laughs> um, I know that's not going to happen. They'd be lucky to get, <clears throat> Even a, a much lower level prospect than Ramos for Billy. Sounds like the Reds are are gonna go into the season with him. I mean, the, that's their guy, which is good for his fantasy value. Yeah, and the I'm happy that the Reds are not caving to what is surely a, a horrendous offer on the table <laughs> because the Giants have 
that farm system's been picked pretty clean at this point. I mean, it's, it's yeah. basically Helio Ramos and nothing. And I, I'm sure the Reds wish that the Giants had stuff behind Ramos and they could work out a deal pretty easily. And the Giants wish that as well. But the Giants are smart not to trade Ramos for Billy, and the Reds are smart not to trade Billy for any of the guys behind Ramos in that system. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Leody Tavares was your next pick. Any, anything you want to add? I mean, I think we've we talked about Tavares a couple times last year, but anything new that you've uncovered with him? Uh, I just think that he's a a decent buy low this offseason in, in Dynasty. Like, I don't. To me, his value hasn't changed a ton, but if he had been a little bit better last year, I think his owner would just have him completely off limits, whereas, you know, he was okay last year. I think he was pretty impressive given his age and everything, but uh, you might be able to pry him loose this offseason, whereas next offseason he might be completely untouchable. So after taking four straight prospects in rounds 8 through 11, put the prospects on hold and grab Delano to Shields in the 12th, who I feel like is a really great value right now. Shelf life on a guy like that may not be that long, but really needed the speed. He's a guy that I could maybe flip if I'm well out of it uh, later in the year, but uh, that did allow you to get then Tavares and Austin Riley, who I think we both came away from the Arizona Fall League pretty impressed with this guy. How much has he risen up your, your prospect rankings this offseason? Uh, I think I probably had him around 60 or so at the end of, uh, well, I actually, honestly, I can't remember, but I, I, he definitely improved his stock in the fall league and he's always a guy that I've sort of had a gut, a gut love for. And when you see someone like that in person, and that was my second time seeing Riley in person this season, like it just really kind of reaffirms. You know, it's confirmation bias, basically, but like that's a guy that I've always kind of believed in, and now I'm really sort of all in on him being their starting third baseman of the future. Not sure what kind of batting average he's going to hit for, but it's it's definitely thirty homer power, especially in that park. And you know, if he just hits two fifty five, two sixty, I think he'll get on base enough to to be an above average hitter at third base. Yeah, and did you get a sense that around this time in the draft was really the time that? A lot of teams caught on and started started taking prospects. We saw quite a few start flying off the board around this time. Um, Tristan McKenzie. We saw, uh, I'm trying to think of a few. Oh, Monty Harrison, Carter Keyboom in the 13th. I was thrilled to get McKenzie Gore in the 14th. I know MLB Pipeline just released their list of top lefty prospects in the game, lefty pitching prospects, and he headed that list. But what are your, your warnings in regards to McKenzie Gore? I don't have any warnings other than just his age and ETA. It's just, you know, he's a pitching prospect who hasn't pitched in full season ball yet. That's the only warning I can give you because everything yeah. else checks out. Like, it's just, is he going to have a Forrest Whitley type ascent to the big leagues where everything just kind of goes perfectly? I mean, he's got the potential to do that. He could go from starting the year at low A to finishing the year at double A. That wouldn't. Well, actually, that would actually surprise me just based on that, that system because they have such a logjam of arms that I don't know if he'll be able to move at that pace, but he might pitch well enough to warrant that type of pace. But, um, I mean, a lot of things can happen, obviously, with, with pitching prospects. So, I mean, he, he's got frontline potential all the way. It's just can he get to the big leagues 
without the the usual pitcher stuff creeping up and biting him. So we talked a little bit about the guys who have graduated from prospect status, but still young. A lot of those guys going early, but one guy who slipped to the 14th and maybe I thought maybe should have fallen a little bit farther, Dansby Swanson. What are your thoughts on Swanson now? Kind of a year removed from him being a consensus top prospect. Is he a guy that's really fallen for you in in terms of long-term expectations? Uh, You know, I think the biggest thing with him is that, you know, and I think we had him, I had him ranked like 10th or 12th among prospects last year, and most places had him like top three or four. Hmm. Uh, I just think his upside has always been oversold. And so to me, he always sort of had that kind of, you know, hopefully he hits like 280, 285, and gets you like 20 homers, something like that. That was always kind of the best case scenario. Yeah, maybe chip, chips in like 10 steals. That was always kind of the best case scenario with him. And now that he's shown that the floor is very low, then, yeah, he's a guy that I think probably should have gone later. I think it's funny that J.P. Crawford, that uh, Tom and Greg grabbed J.P. Crawford the round late, the next round because I think there's some similarities there and that he's, you know, Crawford by certain outlets was the top prospect in the game, at least at the midway point of 2016, I want to say. And so he's got that same sort of pedigree, and it, it just hasn't – the production hasn't really been all that pretty at times. Crawford had a big second half, but I think both of those guys are bigger names and, and have more prospect pedigree than their fantasy upside uh, indicates. So we saw Anthony Alford. I think he was, yeah, one of five prospects to go in the 14th as we see more start to go in the middle rounds here. I like Alfred quite a bit as an athlete and a baseball player. I had my, my eyes on him and even mentioned him in my article for the, the magazine just because he's not getting a ton of 2018 hype. But, man, your your outlook on him really opened my eyes. New injuries have long been an issue, but what was it like? I don't know. I got to look this up because the number of games he's played over the past – like what seven seasons? Three hundred and five games over six seasons. Do you think this guy's ever going to stay healthy? I just I don't know. I mean, there's just there's a lot of risk there. So it's if there weren't any. Well, look. If I mean, if he hadn't, if there weren't any medical concerns, then he would have probably spent all of last year in the big leagues because he would have mm. been He's on the 40 developing man. at a normal pace and. You know, it's twofold with prospects like this where injuries keep coming up, like Roman Quinn's another guy like this, uh, where, and like you'll have pitchers kind of like Max Freed, uh, those types of guys where it's not just that they are riskier because they're, they seem more susceptible to injury, but it's those injuries have really stunted their development more so than just your typical prospect who stays healthy because they're not getting to have a full season where they get to make adjustments and then the pitchers adjust back and then they adjust back. I mean, it's just, you don't get to experience the same sort of ups and downs that a normal prospect gets to experience. So that, that adds another element of risk. Uh, the tools are definitely there. The opportunities there. I mean, uh, Toronto outfield's going to be easy to crack when he's ready, but yeah, definitely, definitely plenty of injury, injury risk with Alfred. 15th round pick. Who's getting a lot more attention now that, Andrew McCutcheon has been shipped out. Austin Meadows, this was a guy that, you know, I was 
looking at his maybe arriving last year, but Pirates slow played him a bit. Wasn't really the need, I, I guess, um, for most of the year. But I'm pretty skeptical about Austin Meadows ever being a really big fantasy force. Uh, what are your thoughts on him now that some of the luster has kind of worn off? Yeah, I mean, he's another guy that has really been hurt by injuries. And with him, the injury, the specific type of injury is actually more concerning to me than any one injury that Alfred's had because Meadows just keeps getting these hamstring issues. They've plagued him in three separate seasons now. We've seen that. I mean, if you're a you're on a Cespedes owner, I mean, you know what it's like to just go week to week, basically, on your guy's availability. And that could be the case with Meadows. And the problem is, you know, he's he's missed a lot of time. The power's backed up because he's changed his approach to, to be kind of a more all-fields type of guy, which is fine in in theory it's just that it it seems to have sapped his power and he hasn't that that change in approach hasn't resulted in you know him stacking 300 batting averages on top of each other he's actually been been well below that so now you've got a guy where i just i don't know what his top tool is right now it used to be maybe he's a plus hitter plus runner plus power i don't know if any anything's plus anymore so Mm -hmm. that that's why he's quite a ways down my list i think i'm in the 70s maybe Still a guy that could end up being – I mean, he could prove me wrong this year. If he stays healthy and just has kind of a classic bounce-back campaign, me having him in the 70s could look really stupid. But if he just kind of comes out and performs the way he did last year, I don't know when he necessarily gets his shot in Pittsburgh. I mean, they've they've got a lot of guys. They've got Jordan Luplo, Adam Frazier – not world beaters by any stretch, but guys that are definitely big league ready. So he's going to have to hit his way there. And and last year, what he did wasn't the type of performance I think is going to get him to the show this year. A couple rounds after Meadows, another guy whose uh, stock has fallen, you could say. Um, definitely in the fantasy community, but maybe even more so at the Mets. Dominic Smith. I mean, bringing in Adrian Gonzalez as a stopgap, I I don't know, especially with a team that's so conscious about their budget. I'm a little surprised there. But did you, from what Smith saw, uh, what Smith did last year, did you come away with the idea that he's just not ready at this moment? I, I mean, my idea is that the Mets don't really know what they're doing. Because uh, <laughs> I mean, Jay Bruce, it sounds you know, when Conforto's ready, he's going to be involved at first as well. The Mets seemed well. Yeah, Jay Bruce is going to be involved at first. They have a one of their top five prospects is Peter Alonso, who's another first baseman. I know that they're desperate to compete right now. They're they're kind of caught between two teams. Like, ideally, they would be kind of grooming this next crop of position players like Conforto and Rosario and Smith and Flores. I, I like Wilmer Flores a little bit, uh, but instead, it's just you're kind of you got a quick trigger on a guy like Dominic Smith. I mean, I know that Babip isn't everything, but I mean, he, he had a 218 Babip last year. That was a big part of his struggles. I know he struck out more than he than he had in the minors, but I think that that's something that I would fully expect to be improved upon in his second full season. Uh, it just takes it takes reps, and you got to give those guys reps. And if you send him back to AAA, I don't really know what that does. Do you think it's something to do with like? 
you know, his body type, his conditioning and that, and that noise, or is it, uh, is that kind of overblown with Dominic Smith? There are whispers about him maybe not putting in the effort in terms of conditioning and stuff like that. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's fine. I, I just, I don't know if he's sent back to triple A at, does he get in shape? I, I don't know. It, <laughs> it's, there's obviously a lot of information we don't have. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Dominic Smith's value, even when he was only hitting like 10 homers a year as a first base prospect, his value is probably even lower now than it was then. Yeah. And, uh, staff keeper one, which has different rules in this league. So he's already, you know, you can't stash him in a minor league spot anymore. Uh, I think that's probably the case with most leagues actually, but you know, he's going to go to three A's only keepable as part of your 15 major league keepers. Really giving no thought to to keeping a guy like that. It's, it sucks. No. I was kind of excited about him. Uh, power, I thought was developing, and the, I thought the hit tool might carry him, but I'm really not optimistic, especially for for 2018. You ended up taking Jalen Ortiz, uh, Jose Martinez, who I do I do like as a under, not fully under the radar, but as a guy who could surprise some people this year. Jordan Alvarez, and then Tyler Glass. Now talk about a guy who's Shine has worn off, worn off uh, considerably. Excellent year at AAA, but fair, failed to carry that momentum back to the majors. But watching him, it did seem like he was being squeezed a lot. More confidence in the the fastball and commanding that will be big moving forward. Do you think it's a a bullpen piece, or are you still optimistic that he can be a decent starter? I'm still optimistic that he can be a decent starter, and I I was kind of perplexed as to why he lasted this long. You have guys like Carlos Rodon, Sean Newcomb, uh, Julio Urias, who's yeah, Urias over Glass got now. all kinds of risk. Uh, I mean, even a guy like Hunter Green, like Glass now is basically big league ready. He's, there's going to be ups and downs still. And he, he kind of fits that Lewis Brinson sort of mold where like we were able to take this gamble because we're not dead set on getting production from him this year. We're, we're fine with this being another developmental year for him. Uh, sometimes those six, seven, six, eight starters just take longer, but unlike with guys like Giolito, uh, where the stuff just isn't the same as it used to be when they were ranked as top prospects, Glasnow's stuff is just as good as ever. I mean, he's still got number mm-hmm. one starter type of stuff. So, it's all about command and control with him and throwing. If he if he can start throwing more strikes, he he did at AAA last year. Um, the AAA numbers were insane. Yeah, sub two ERA, like 180 strikeouts and. I just I think it's a fun exercise to compare Tyler Glass now right now, versus some of the pitching prospects that got taken ahead of him in this draft, and just ask the question like. A, how does their upside compare? And B, like, is he really more risky than some of these guys? Um, you know, guys like Hunter Green, Jesus Lazardo, who are just a long ways away from the majors, uh, Chance Adams, Jack Flaherty, Jordan Montgomery, guys like that, where it's just like, well, maybe they're number three starters. They're probably number four starters. Like, Jay Grom went in the same round. I mean, he's got all kinds of risk. I mean, it's just I don't I don't understand why – just because Glasnow's kind of been around for a bit longer, he all of a sudden gets discounted to the point that he's getting treated like a 70 or 80th overall prospect. I mean, the stuff is still just crazy. Yeah, I think 
obviously recency bias is very real, but people putting too much stock into that one start and a couple of bullpen appearances. That start was, you know, he was really catching some tough breaks. Such a small sample. I'm not really worried about that. I love that pick. I, I was kind of kicking myself. I did have like a, a fat guy finger slip a couple rounds earlier, but the, I had another chance to take him and I and I missed out on glass. Now I like that pick a lot. When I get through 20 rounds on this show, James, then maybe we could finish up the, the back half of this draft. It is a 40-round draft on the next show. Sure. So we saw guys like Anderson Espinoza, who is another guy who's seen his stock fall quite a bit due to injury. He went in the 19th. Colby Allard in the 19th as well. Nick Gordon. A lot of people loading up on prospects in this range. Harrison Bader I thought was eh, questionable. Hunter Dozier. Um, Freudus Nova. Pretty good pick there. A little bit down on your prospect list, but as a, a upside type of pick, I like that. Any prospects in this 19 to 20 range that, that jumped out as value to you? Uh, Brandon Marsh, I really liked. You know, I had him ranked in the 60s, I believe. Super toolsy outfielder in the Angels system. He went in the 20th round to Matt Winkleman. I thought that was excellent value. Wander Javier in the twin system. Obviously, all kinds of risk there. But he's closer than, than Nova to me. The upside's similar. I mean, Javier's got the potential to be a like 300-hitting, 30-homer shortstop if everything works out right. So I like that a lot. And then my guy Colton Welker uh, going in the 20th round. You know, we we tried to get a little cute with him just because, you know, I don't know if Ian was quite as high on him as I was, and I'm higher on him than most people. So we thought that, you know, he might be there for us a couple rounds later. Wasn't the case because my buddy Josh Katzenstein has a Rotowire subscription. So he he saw where I had Welker ranked and popped him in the 20th. That's that's going to be a really good pick. And then Kiebert Ruiz, actually. Uh, Goldstein... And Ben Carsley from Baseball Prospectus popped him in the 20th round about, yeah, so five picks ahead of us. And that actually kind of spurred us to taking Mike Zanino because we'd been kind of, I think our our whole plan was that Ruiz was going to be our first catcher. Then when he went, we were just kind of like, all right, well, let's look at this position. Like, who do we want? And to us, Zanino was kind of a clear best option just for dynasty league purposes because you know he's got the age on his side playing time's not gonna be an issue he's a really good defender uh there's gonna be batting average regression most likely in 2018 but that doesn't mean that he can't continue to have skills growth and eventually get to the point in 2019 2020 where he's a legit 250 hitter and that power's definitely legit like it's he's got the chance to hit 30 homers one of these seasons so the Ruiz pick by Goldstein and Carsley forced us kind of into to going Zanino there. Interesting. So over the first half of this draft, any picks among prospects that stand out as a big reach? I have one in mind. Um, a little catcher. Sure, sure. Who's UT I, only this year? Start the year. Um, Francisco Mejia is the guy. <laughs> even in the seventh. Well, okay. Well, we can talk about Mejia. So. I think a lot of people would tell you that that wasn't a reach at all. And I just don't. So 
the best the best version of Mejia that I can realistically and let's just let's give him the benefit of the doubt defensively, even though I part of the reason why he's further down my rankings than pretty much any other rankings you'll see is because I don't think he's going to qualify at catcher for all that long. But let's just say he qualifies a catcher his whole career. Like, is his production ever going to be better than what you're going to get from a guy like Austin Barnes or JT Real Muto? Like, best case scenario. Um, you know, he, you know who he actually kind of reminds me a lot of is uh, Blake Swihart, where mm. it's just, you know, great hit tool. You know, defense is kind of shaky, but he'll he'll play there. He'll he'll get to play there. And then it's just obviously Swihart has injuries that have kind of derailed him. But I think there's a lesson to be learned from investing in catchers whose defense is shaky and offensive floor seems high because it's like when you're when you're a catcher and you have so much work to do behind the plate it's kind of hard to you know hitting big league pitching is really hard (laughs) like you don't I've heard like you don't get to just work your ass off at being a better defensive catcher and also find the time to work your ass off at being able to hit big league pitching like sometimes like one of those things uh will probably suffer for the other and Hell, hitting in the cages is hard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, I don't see the upside with Mejia in the seventh round. I just don't. I, and I, I'm, pr- I'm probably on a minority there. I know a lot of people think Mejia is one of the best catching prospects to come around in a while. And, and this time last year, I, I would have said the same thing. It's just that I've, I've gotten too many reports on his defense being bad. I think that, like who's who's another catcher that their team liked their defense behind the plate, but they just said, "Eh, let's just send him to the AFL and let's get him, let's get him mm. accumulated at or uh, assimilated third. at third base." Yeah. Like, and it's not like the Indians have two just stud roadblocks at catcher that yeah. like we're not gonna be able to find time for him at catcher. I mean, we got to get. It's a very good point. I mean, it's just there's so many red flags there the other thing too is that this is a one catcher league obviously right. 20 teams but i think that discounts catchers quite a so bit so Mejia went in the seventh uh i actually have ruiz who went in the 20th ranked ahead of Mejia. so that's that's how big of a reach i thought that was just because the nice thing about ruiz he's going to stick behind the plate and he can do everything Mejia can do with the bat and more so he's further away Mejia's not that far away in theory, but a for 2018, I just don't know. I don't see how that production's coming. Um, Cause a, you, you're, you're asking a team like the Indians whose competitive window is right now to sacrifice catcher defense just to get their prospect in there who may or may not rake against big league pitching. And if they decide that it's, probably not in the best interest of the team to take that defensive hit in 2018. Where is he playing? Very good points. I had a reach in the early part of the second half of the draft. Had to reach up for my boy Franchi Cordero, the franchise. Um, Look, I'm buying in. It's probably totally (laughs) stupid. But I'm buying into this this improvement, steady improvement he's shown throughout the year. This has... uh, 
I mean, this is totally shaping up for him to just hit like 150. Oh, yeah. Like April. And you and I oh, are just yeah. going to be on, on Team French. <laughs> and, you know, it, that's that's a theme of drafts right now. If you want French, you better reach. You better jump up. I was mad that you got him in our Arizona draft. I had to jump up a, while, a few rounds to get him just because he has been getting buzz on Twitter. I know some people are aware of his monster Dominican Winter League showing. MVP and rookie of the year now into the postseason. And this was as of this was as of last week. So he's added to this number quite a bit. But as of last Monday, through last Monday, he had played in 182 games since the start of the minor league season, 764 plate appearances, uh improved patience. So, you know, with a guy like that with the raw tools, I just think seeing so many pitches over the course of the year is big for a guy like that, just getting the reps. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that he is a great example of a guy where you can take advantage of how much he struggled in the big leagues last year, and as long as Clay and I aren't in your draft, you can probably get him at a at a real nice <laughs> you know, value. Super cheap, like dirt cheap. <laughs> you can probably get him with your last pick in like a 20-team draft. Yeah, as long or as like your 40th pick in the in a draft and hold. But yeah, yeah, just be sure we're not in yeah. there. Yeah, and, and so here's – I just love the tools and the opportunity and yeah. the the, price. And the defense too. Right, like his his defense can get him in the game. He's got power. He's got speed. I mean, Statcast. According to Statcast, he's like one of the ten fastest players in the big leagues. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's kind of deceptive. Like Bradley Zimmer also rates well on that, and you just don't look at him and think, "Oh, there's a burner." But uh, I mean, and it plays up because he's playing a corner, right? You know, these you got Margot covering a lot of ground with those two, and he's yeah, he's got. He's always had impressive raw power. I mean, he could get you like a sneaky 15-15, maybe like 18-18 with like a 245 average, something like that. I mean... It's pretty valuable in a league like this. And there's nobody that's going to be pushing him. Like, he he might, by like May or June, he might be playing every day for them, and nobody's coming up behind him anytime soon. So he's going to have a couple seasons to kind of go through those growing pains and possibly turn himself into a pretty quality regular. Uh, I do just want to quickly, before we wrap up, um, pump up a couple more picks. Uh, Guys that have actually moved up my rankings a little bit recently. uh, Luis Urias, obviously, with the Padres. I would like to ask you about him, actually, because I love the approach, but, man, very little power. Not a ton of speed. I think the speed... Obviously, speed doesn't come like you don't <laughs> you you don't grow into speed. So, um, you know, I, I don't think you're going to get many contributions there. But I don't. I just think his his hit tool and approach is so advanced. Like I think Vlad Junior might be the most advanced hitter that I've ever seen since I've been doing this. But Urias might be second on that list. <laughs> and I just think that. You know, a guy that could hit two tw- or three twenty-five, three thirty. I think he's going to get to fifteen homer power at some point. I just think that that has value. He's always going to be hitting first or second in in the big league lineup. And then, I mean, he went in the sixteenth round. And then, uh, I think if there's one guy that I wish that Ian and I had maybe reached on, or not not reached on, but just made sure we got, was Forrest Whitley, who. I moved to 10th on our prospect list today. I Jeez, moved, him, really? moved him ahead of Royce Lewis. Um, 
I just think like I've I've had him as the number one pitching prospect since the end of last season, and I think everyone else is sort of coming around on that. So I think that he deserves like he's I haven't felt this good about a pitching prospect since Syndergaard. So I, I just I think he's a number one starter, and I know that the Astros have a full rotation now, but I mean you know that Charlie Morton and Lance McCullers are going to miss time at some point, and I think one way or another, Whitley will be pitching for the big league club in in the second half. Yeah, I would imagine so. Um, Luis Gohar in the 10th also seemed like a pretty good pick, uh, especially because probably give you close to a full season's worth of innings this year. A lot of Ks. We'll see where the ratios settle, but uh, buy the strikeouts, and the rest should follow eventually. James, appreciate the insight as always. Check out his latest Farm Futures piece, Rotowire Dynasty Invitation on Top 300 Rankings. It was fun getting to see these, you know, after we completed these rounds because you and I were on the same, wa- same wavelength on a lot of these, but it was fun to see the differences. Uh, I know, you know, especially as a Reds fan, taking Luis, uh, passing on Luis Castillo to, to get Weaver must have been a real head-scratcher for you but because uh, there is a decent gap in there. You still have Weaver as a, you know, 140 overall, but, man, I just seeing the Reds every day, and seeing how we got like three wins and like ninety innings last year, I just was forced to the Weaver side due to team context. But we will break down the rest of this draft on next week's episode. James, thanks again. Talk to you guys then. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.